Designing Freedom. Massey Lectures by Stafford Beer. Stafford Beer is Professor of Cybernetics, International Consultant and Author in the Sciences of Management and Effective Organization. Tonight, the fourth talk, called Science in the Service of the Man. The scene is a small airport at a vacation resort where a weekend conference on automation has been held for senior businessmen. Everyone is going home. The man in front of me at the desk finds to his horror that the flight for which he has a ticket is already full. I'm so sorry, says the desk clerk soothingly. We are having trouble with all the flyaway airlines flights. Uh, something has gone wrong with their computer. In the quiet of the little airport lounge, everyone is listening. A large man, several places back in the queue, leans forward and says loudly, Excuse me, young man. I am a director of the flyaway airline. We do not have a computer. Some people laughed, but the general atmosphere turned to acute embarrassment. I don't think that this was because the desk clerk had been caught out in his white lie. As I argued in the second lecture, the computer has come to represent a malign influence and something of which people are frightened. Therefore, people are most unlikely to call on its aid or to demand its use in the redesign of society. But the embarrassment attending this incident also suggested that the great juju nonetheless exists, and to deny that was a somehow dangerous act. The title of this lecture is Science in the Service of Man, and I should be terribly surprised if its announcement caused so much as a blink of scepticism. A thoroughgoing job has been done in putting forward the slogan that science serves mankind, and the time arrives to examine this proposition with some care. This doesn't mean striking a balance between the benefits of nuclear power and the risks of atomic war, between germ control for better medicine and crippling the ecology with pesticides. Those debates raise apparently insoluble dilemmas for society because they are contradictory outputs of high-variety dynamic systems whose basic institutional machinery goes unexamined. Science has been sold as the servant of man in the wrong way and for the wrong reasons. Let us start with the source of wealth, production. Here, science is put forward as the promoter of efficiency, and I don't have to trace for you the familiar story of the Industrial Revolution, of the assembly lines of mass production, of the resulting fall in unit cost. Nor need I point triumphantly to the widespread availability of its products. But it is necessary to become conscientiously aware of the alienation that all this has induced in the industrial worker, so that social scientists are now engaged in frantic attempts to restore some sense of humanity to the working situation in which so many find themselves, a situation to which numberless millions in the third world stand to be condemned in future as their countries struggle for their share of the Earth's fixed assets. Something has gone wrong. Turn secondly, then, to science as the servant of the consuming man, we have been sold labour-saving devices of every kind as the fruit of science and technology. The automobile got us out into the countryside, where we met everyone else in his automobile. Again, it would seem, something has gone wrong. 
It's against this background at work and at home that science and technology are driven relentlessly forward towards a society of conspicuous consumption, since this is the only development that our economic machinery can countenance. I mean that growth is the order of the day. More goods must be brought within the range of more people, which can be done by more automation, more standardization and lower unit costs, coupled, unfortunately, with an increasingly noticeable fall in intrinsic worth. Therefore, people must be persuaded that this is what they want, that this constitutes the good life, and this is science in the service of man. But I believe that the society of conspicuous consumption is proving to be the most alienating force the world has ever known, and that the fantastic consumption of drugs, both legally prescribed and illegally acquired, is a useful index of the degree of alienation now in evidence. By now, something has gone very wrong indeed. What does this brief analysis purport to show? It argues that the sense in which people accept that science serves man is a false sense, since science is in these typical ways being used to destroy man in his humanity and in his joy of living. Moreover, it is getting through to decent people that on a planet the resources of which are only now becoming recognized as finite, prosperity for all is a delusory goal. We buy increasing prosperity for we few at the expense of the many who can never attain it. As the alienation grows, there is increasing resistance to the idea of yet more science with the result that new proposals for handling old problems by the use of computers and telecommunications are often greeted with something approaching public hysteria. I'm thinking of electronic files on the citizen, or the kind of government control system that I described last time. The point is that this panic is well justified so long as society continues down the existing path following its technological nose. Yet, if societary institutions are to escape the fate of catastrophic instability, we shall very certainly need new systems of these kinds. It follows that science has to be handled in a new way. There is only one solution that I can see. It is to remove the control of science and technology from those who alone can finance its development and to vest its control in the people. As to scientists and technologists themselves, they are truly servants of that public, whereas the present tendency is to turn them into an elite instrument of those who have the economic power over scientific systems themselves. That way lies technocracy, and we are perilously close to it already. How realistic can this solution possibly be? After all, people who have power simply never hand it over to others. Moreover, in this case, vast sums of money are involved. I reply that the solution is realistic in a democratic society to the extent that the demand to redesign societal institutions is made articulate. The process can begin by debunking the mystery surrounding scientific work. It would make a very good basic postulate for the ordinary citizen to say something like this to himself and to discuss it with others. For the first time in the history of man, science can do whatever can be exactly specified. Then, also for the first time, we don't have to be scientists to understand what can be done. 
It follows that we are no longer at the mercy of a technocracy which alone can tell us what to do. Our job is to start specifying. For this, new channels are needed. But of course they could be set up. What is television for? Is it really a graveyard for dead movies or animated wallpaper for stopping the processes of thought? What is the computer for? Is it really a machine for making silly mistakes at incredible expense? What will be done with cybernetics, the science of effective organisation? Should we all stand by complaining and wait for someone malevolent to take it over and enslave us? An electronic mafia lurks round that corner. These things are all instruments waiting to be used in creating a new and free society. It's time to use them. Then, as to cost, who will pay the bills? We do that already, since it's taxation and inflation that finances the schemes of governments and a loading on the prices we pay that finances the schemes of corporations, public and private. But as far as I can see, the citizens have lost control entirely of the choice of projects that will be undertaken on their behalf, both as taxpayers and as consumers. At best, they play a defensive role in attempting to quash schemes they dislike. And that is a difficult role because it doesn't carry requisite variety with it. Anyone who's had dealings with a public inquiry knows only too well that the bureaucracy has the power to amplify its variety indefinitely in terms of the time, money and expert advice it is free to deploy against a little band of citizens who do not have access to these amplifiers. Obviously, I'm trying to dig beneath the surface layer of science and technology, as we know it in society, to uncover new strata of scientific potentiality. The societal use of science we have is threatening. It becomes oppressive and alienating. The societal use of science we could have is a liberation. To grapple with that idea, I well understand, needs courage and resolve. The risk is that folk who see the very real dangers will turn their backs on the whole difficult business. But how safe would our great-grandparents have felt if plunged suddenly into a modern home, a modern street? We have had three or four generations in which to adapt to a house alive with lethal electricity, a road alive with lethal trucks. We have had barely 20 years to adapt to the inventions and discoveries that these lectures discuss then no wonder the adaptation is not coming along too well yet. No wonder people feel at ease with an automobile that they literally dominate and ill at ease with the computer which they do not. The interesting thing is that a majority, perhaps, of automobile dominators don't understand exactly how those machines of theirs work and yet use a similar ignorance of the computer's viscera to explain their distrust of it. Be that as it may, the problem of rapid adaptation for the individual that has now emerged is a similar pattern, in cybernetic terms, to the problem of rapid adaptation for the institution. Let's try to analyse the modern individual's problems in the language that we have been learning, because this problem is indeed a problem of effective organisation. The first thing we have to face up to is quite a tough proposition for people reared in our culture. It is that whatever we humans can do is mediated by our brains, and those brains are finite. We have in the cranium a slightly alkaline three-pound electrochemical computer 
running on glucose at about 25 watts. This computer contains some 10,000 million, that's 10 to the 10, logical elements called neurons, operating on a basic scanning rhythm of 10 cycles per second. Then this is a high variety dynamic system, all right, but it really is finite. It follows from Ashby's law that we can recognize patterns up to a certain limit and not beyond. Thus, if something is going on that involves a higher variety than the brain commands, we shall not recognize what it is. This is the old constraint of requisite variety again. There are practical consequences to this. For instance, I'm sure that the reason why we are making such a hash of the problems of global ecology is that we can't understand them. I don't just mean that they are awfully difficult so that understanding will take a lot of research. I mean that we cannot understand at all, ever. Very likely this goes for many problems of government too, especially world government. It may even be true at the level of recursion where a corporation is managed. May I recall that the level of recursion is simply the focus of attention at which we contemplate any viable system and that one level is contained within the next. So here is an unpleasing thought. Maybe it's also true at our personal level of recursion. Perhaps we can't actually understand our own lives, our own environment, any longer. Now, with or without full understanding, with or without the requisite variety to detect vital patterns, we have to cope somehow at all these levels. Of course, we do it by making mental models. We simplify so that the system we are considering will map onto our own brains. But that can be done only by attenuating variety, and we have no guarantee that we are not throwing the wrong information away. It's fairly evident that we shall become accustomed to discarding information in set ways and to eliminating inputs that do not seem to fit very well with the models we have developed. I think this must mean that what we all refer to as reality is a version of the universe that is very much cut off at the knees. To be rude about it, you could say that our humanity exists in sharing a delusion about the way things are. At this point, I would love to start talking about mysticism or about psychosis or about psychedelic drugs. Especially, I would like to talk about the relations between them. Because these three things have this much in common. They claim to deal with aspects of reality which our shared delusion filters out. But the point I was really after is this. The currently explosive rate of change produces perturbations at intervals that are shorter than the relaxation time of our institutional system. That was my earlier hypothesis. I have pointed to its realization in Chile. I now extend that hypothesis to cover you and me as individuals. Can it be, perhaps, that if we all suffer from a variety overload that we cannot map onto our models and from an ungovernable oscillation in our search for mental equilibrium? In short, is our species facing the same threat of catastrophic instability as I earlier argued that our institutions are. It could be so. One of the greatest biologists of our time, the Nobel laureate Albert St. Georgie, who discovered vitamin C, believes it, and not at all from the reason I am using here. He calls man the crazy ape and reckons that we have all gone down an evolutionary blind alley. Well, I'm by nature an optimist, but I do believe in facing facts. 
If you suspect my advocacy in these lectures of almost revolutionary change in our approach to running affairs is too extreme, if you consider that I have overstated the failure of our institutions, if you think that the remedies I am proposing are more dangerous to human freedom than the disease itself, then please wonder about these new and serious thoughts. They concern the variety engineering to which our culture subjects our personal input, because for me, this is what freedom is all about. I am tired of being told that the computer threatens our freedom, that cybernetics is a tool of the devil, that real-time government regulators are too dangerous to employ. The reason is that I reckon our existing liberty to be largely illusory. We are fooling ourselves. There is a new chance now to get our freedom back, even for us to bestow freedom on those who are following in our disastrous paths. Please look at it this way. We all know that a majority of people on this planet are enslaved. I mean this in the straightforwardly physical sense. Most people alive don't have enough to eat and must live under regimes that tell them what to do. By such standards, all of us who share these broadcasts are incomparably better off, more free. The fact remains that our own relationship with our environment is governed by bank upon bank of variety attenuators, conveniently reducing a world of increasing variety to the requisite variety of our brains. We have completely lost control of the process by which this occurs. Here are the two most evident examples. The first is education. Every pupil is a high variety organism and the process of education essentially constrains variety. In other words, the pupil is capable of generating many responses to the question, what is six multiplied by seven? The educator will seek to attenuate this potential variety to the single answer, 42. But if we take a different kind of example, we may find ourselves saying something significantly different. The pupil is capable of generating many responses to the question, how should a national health service be organized? This time, however, we may hope that the educator will not attenuate potential variety to the single answer like this. No, we say, education is a word coming from the Latin, educare, to lead out. It does not mean to push in. And yet it remains true that in any case, the process of education constrains variety. Anyone who thinks over this little paradox for a few minutes can see that in the second example, the hope is that we can teach the pupil ways of attenuating his own variety. We want to offer him ways of finding answers, not of enforcing our own. All this is perfectly obvious, you could rightly say. But do we proceed on the basis of this distinction? Of course not. Off we go once again, inserting the amplifiers and attenuators on the wrong sides of the equations. Take the question I mentioned, how should a national health service be organized? What happens? People are sent from underdeveloped countries to study this matter in overdeveloped countries, where in truth they may well discover how a health service should not be organized and be robbed by the experience of the power to devise better answers. Take the question, how should we train the work people to engage in fully participative management so that the outlook of the shop floor can be represented in the boardroom? Can you believe that the answer I here advocated to this is that selected workers should be sent to business schools? 
the variety equation is overturned once again. Here is a recipe to ensure that on arrival in the boardroom, the workers' participation will be indistinguishable from that of the other directors. Take the question, what is the theory of relativity? Because of the cultural myths that all technology is dehumanising and that all great minds are incomprehensible, we shall prefer to sit a hundred pupils uncomfortably in front of a human teacher who hopes he understands relativity and who roughed out some notes last night rather than to give the individual pupil access to videotape recordings which he can replay to his heart's content of Albert Einstein, who could be as lucid as the day. Oh yes, I know Einstein is dead and didn't even make those recordings. What I should like to know is how many Einsteins shall we let die, and how many theories of relativity shall we let go improperly explained, before we recognise where to use our variety amplifiers and attenuators with good sense. The problem is nowhere clearer in the field of education than in the evolving use of the computer. Here, once again, the machine could be used as a real liberator. It is an instrument of colossal variety to which each pupil could have ready access. Thanks to parallel processing, a computer can be interrogated, explored, used, continuously and in different ways by a few hundred pupils at once. It has requisite variety. So what happens? The variety is attenuated out of the computer by making it operate trivial little programs that actually condition the pupil to give the right, in quotes, answers to a set of trivial questions. Which brings me to the second example, namely publishing. If education begins the process of constraining our cerebral variety, publishing, whether on paper or by radio waves, uh, continues it forever. The editorial decision is the biggest variety attenuator that our culture knows. Then the cybernetic answer is to turn over the editorial function to the individual which may be done by a combination of computer-controlled search procedures of recorded information made accessible by telecommunications. Cable television has all the potential answers because it can command 80 channels. This offers enough capacity to circulate the requisite variety for an entirely personalised education system in which the subscriber would be in absolute command of his own development. Well, we're frightened of this projection, too. Someone may get inside the works, we say, and start conditioning us. Maybe we should have 80 alternative standard channels, thereby, quote, restoring choice to the people. Here is my third and last bit of mathematics. 80 times nothing is nothing. Meanwhile, we allow publishers to file away electronically masses of information about ourselves, who we are, what are our interests, and to tie that in with mail order schemes, credit systems and advertising campaigns that line us all up like a row of ducks to be picked off in the interests of conspicuous consumption. I know which prospect frightens me the more. As I try to pull together the threads of this, the most diffuse of the lectures, I would like to remind you that I have been talking about societary science and the individual, you and me, and not proposing societary solutions. I hope that some solutions will begin to appear in the final lecture, which would be the proper place for them. However, we can't even think about finding solutions without correctly recognising the problems. And in my opinion, it's now commonplace to pose these problems incorrectly. 
Certainly it's common ground that scientific techniques threaten the individual in society. And I have not used up time in talking about the obvious ones to which all governments are addressing themselves. The problems about privacy, creditworthiness and blackmail, problems about urban planning and so on. Choices are available in these matters and we may pray that the best ones will be made. The argument of this lecture is very different. It has to do with the cybernetics of our own brains and I shall now put it together. I am sorry that it assaults what we all think of as the human prerogative, but it's best to face the truth. The brain is a finite instrument that mediates all our experience. It has high variety, but not necessarily requisite variety, for handling an environment of exploding complexity. It has a relaxation time that was fast enough to deal with a world in which perturbations came at a particular rate, but it is not necessarily fast enough to offer a guarantee of equilibrial response in the current world. This brain has certain powers, and these are essentially computational, which makes it the most developed regulatory system the world knows. But my cybernetic interpretation of the evidence from biology, psychiatry, pharmacology and criminology is that this brain, and again that just means you and I, is by now seriously threatened by a possible catastrophic instability. Finally, this brain simply does not have the powers of untold resilience or infinite self-improvement to which 3,000 years of pre-scientific culture have laid a spurious claim. Please now hear me when I add that these considerations make no commentary whatsoever on matters that may or may not lie outside the physical domain. If mankind can indeed receive the divine afflatus, the point remains, as I rather carefully put it just now, that the brain is a finite instrument that mediates all our experience and is therefore limiting. As a personal aside, let me say that I am more interested in the fact that I could not recognize an angel if I met one, because my brain doesn't have requisite variety, than I am in the illegitimate scientific argument that angels don't exist because I have not recognized one yet. Returning to the main argument about the limitations of the brain, I've argued that we as individuals are the unwitting victims of a cultural process which very drastically delimits variety for us. In the first place, our economic environment points to an increasing use of science and technology in what is allegedly the service of man, but which I contend takes this service in a false sense. As a result, we stand, and the innocent legatees of our policies in the developing nations yet more vulnerably stand, to be exploited by whoever wields the power of science to technocratic ends. In the second place, the instruments of variety constraint turn out to be education and the communications media, both of which we culturally suppose to be variety amplifiers. This belief is as delusory as the belief that we can fully know reality. It's entirely possible to take corrective action about all this, not the biological limitations, but the societary constraints. To do so requires that people themselves take control of the use of science through their democratic processes. This means furnishing them and their governments with new channels of communication and a new kind of educational system and a new kind of publishing system. Why are these recommendations necessary? 
The answer is that the necessary attenuation of variety produces in us a mere model of the world. And insofar as we wish to control the world, whether as citizens or as individuals within a personal environment, our powers of regulation are cybernetically constrained by the model we hold of what needs to be regulated. Our civilization has led us to a manifestly dysfunctional model. Then we must equip ourselves to revise it. The power to do this, we certainly do possess. Service of the Man, the fourth of the 1973 Massey Lectures by Professor Stafford Beer. Dr. Beer is the author of five major books on the subject of cybernetics. Next Monday evening, his talk is called The Future That Can Be Demanded Now. The 1973 Massey Lectures by Stafford Beer, Designing Freedom, are now available in paperback. If you'd like to purchase a copy, send a check or money order for $2.50 to CBC Learning Systems, Post Office Box 500, Terminal A, Toronto, Ontario, M5W1E6. That's CBC Learning Systems, Box 500, Terminal A, Toronto, Ontario, M5W1E6.